And so we're going to do one more introduction to the idea of His commands and His law. Uh, some people have the attitude of, well, God's law, ugh, yeah, yeah. The Bible says, He that turneth away his ear from the hearing of the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. The, the man in Psalm 1 says, He delights in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. David said, Oh, how love I thy law. He didn't even have the rest of the Bible. He just had like the law part and maybe some of the historical. He said, oh, how love I thy law. Because you know why he loved it so much? Because he had a relationship with the lawgiver. And that makes a difference. So, And that's part of what we're going to come out today as we look at God's law is that he's really interested in relationship. It's not just about rules without a relationship. But he loves us and he wants to have a relationship with us. And wise, helpful relationships have some pound parameters, don't they? Relationships have a little bit, they should have agreed upon borders and parameters. Otherwise, a relationship without parameters, I don't think there's real love there. And so, anyhow, we're getting you started here on thinking about this. What I'd like to do is spend a little time, we'll read some of the text, and I want to paint in your mind again the scene of when the Ten Commandments were given, okay? They were at camp. They were at camp by a mountain, okay? When they heard this, and then they got a written addition of it. All right, so let's read some of this, not all of Exodus 19, but part of Exodus 19 into Exodus 20. And it says there, look at Exodus 19, and let's pick up on verse 16. And um, God, Moses had been getting the people ready for about three days. God told them, get them ready. And I'm going to meet with everybody. We're going to have a camp meeting. And um, it was one unlike they've ever had. At the base of the mountain, it says, verse 16, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Now we're on Exodus 19, verse 17 now. Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the nether part of the mount. That's the base of the mount. They were not to start going up it. God's, the platform is the mountain and God's up there vocally. And they're at the base listening. Verse 18. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Then the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mount quake, quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up, and the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the Mount, and sanctify it. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee. But let not the priests of the, and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. Verse 1 of chapter 20. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou 
other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea, uh, heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Notice this is command number five here in verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God gave thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Verse 18, And all the people saw thunderings and the lightning and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood back, or pardon me, the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And it goes on to talk about Moses interchanging with God several times here in the rest of the book. But so quickly, let's look at this. This is the scene. So here you have this is the bridge between two continents. All up here is the rest of Asia. In fact, technically, I don't remember if Sinai is part of Asia or part of Africa. I can't remember. I think Egypt owns it. So, But anyways, here's the rest of Asia, and here's Israel, and here's the rest of Africa, and here's Egypt. Children of Israel were saved out of slavery in Egypt, one to two million people. Saved out of slavery, they're by miraculous fashion, crossed the Red Sea within... Um, uh, in the third month, it says they camped right here. I think it would have been about, um, by the time they got here for the Ten Commandments, it was basically about 40, 50 days after, uh, 50 days after the Passover. They think this happened on the day of Pentecost, which is the birthday of the church, officially, I believe. So also they think the birthday of the Old Testament church, that is the church in the wilderness, or the nation of Israel, they think was on the same time, which is around May. So they cross here, they go through the wilderness here, they camp in these Sinai mountains. I don't get too superstitious figuring out which mountain it is, but they're in this area. And they're at mountains that look basically somewhat like this. If I can get clicked to the next slide. Uh, go ahead and click to the next slide. The, they're in areas that look somewhat like this. Pardon the modern day hikers here. Uh, but it, this is in the Sinai mountain area, okay? And so they were in an area where they, they had the mountains and there was some plain area where they could camp and they can come up and approach the mountain. And so 
that's where Israel was. So they, they come, you know, like I said, one to two million are saved in there miraculously. And within five, uh, I can't remember how many days, but it says it's in the third month. They camp, they're, they're going around and around. In chapter 19, it says that, um, chapter 19, verse 1, in the third month when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they in the wilderness of Sinai. So they had actually been moving around Sinai Peninsula, and they finally come to this area, the lower part of the Sinai Peninsula, and they're all camped there. Now, you know, it's not that, you know, you just don't see every day one or two million people wandering around in a desert, and they are, and God's providing for them. Now, let me, let me, let me just say this. God saved them. He, he, he rescued them. Now he's pulling them away from those. Listen to this. This is God still today. He's pulling them away from those influences, the Egyptian influences. And he's getting them separated. And he's getting them at a campsite. And he's saying, I want to teach you some things. I want to have a relationship with you. God's still that way with us today. After he saves us, he's like, you're good in Egypt. Just stay there. No, he's like, I want you to look like you're out of slavery. I want you to feel like you're out of slavery. I want to, I want to have a, a unique relationship with you, which involves some basic guidelines of life. That's what he's doing for this whole nation, bringing them out, get away from that. That's not you. You're not Egypt. You're my people. You're going to be a peculiar people if you, you want to continue on on this path here. And they all agreed that they're going to listen to what God says here at the campsite. And they say, we will. And so Moses comes back and tells all the people, hey, get ready. In three days, God's going to meet us. So in three days after they get in this region, uh, after they heard Moses say that, they get themselves ready. I mean, this is three days getting ready for church. Some of us took three minutes today to get ready for church. You know, maybe your wives took three hours. I don't know. They might, you know, they're looking pretty and stuff, whatever. But so these are going to take three days. And so it's like, just take this seriously. When you show up here, you're not going to be like, what's he going to say? What, what do you want? What do you want? No, three days, three days. They, whatever they're doing, they're getting themselves, their minds clear and all that, and they show up and they go up the mountain. And, and God's just showing just a little teeny, teeny, tiny sample of his glory and of his yeah, presence. Right. You know, he cut the mountain smoking and there's fire. He comes down in, in a fire and and there's smoking and there's quaking and an earthquake and there's some trumpet. We don't know who this trumpet guy is. Maybe it's Gabriel. He's blowing this trumpet non-stop trumpet and it's sounding long and louder and louder and louder, kind of like building up this tension. I don't know what the design in this is, but they're all the people are there and they're like, whoa, and then finally Moses speaks up. And I think that probably calmed the trumpet and he goes up, speaks to the Lord. And they have this brief conversation we read about, and then Moses comes back down. And that's when he comes down, God begins to speak to them. And he says these words. The Lord spoke all these words, chapter 20, verse 1. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. See, they hadn't heard God say anything except through Moses. When they were in Egypt and they're like, we're slaves. We heard this Moses guy and Aaron's going to deliver us. And they would hear of like, oh, God just, you know, destroyed all the Egyptian cattle for us. Wow. Oh, God just sent another time a plague of, what is it, flies or lice? I'm kind of losing track of these. Wow, God did that for him. Wow. What else is Moses saying he's going to do? 
And so they, they, they hear, they're hearing and seeing miraculous things that God does, and they're hearing things that they say that God says through Moses. They're hearing about God through other people, and they're seeing manifestations of God in Egypt, and they get delivered through the Red Sea. That's amazing. And then finally, they get to hear God for themselves. That's, that's an important point in life. You get to hear pastor. You get to hear the parent tell you about God. Hear them for yourself. Because that's when the true personal relationship will take root. So now they get to hear God for themselves. You know, it's amazing. This, this, these Ten Commandments, God's doing this. It's kind of like our birthday of our nation, July 4th. You know, we declared, well, we declared independence. Later on, I can't remember the year, late, 18, late 1700s or whatever, the Constitution. And it's kind of like Bill of Rights kind of formed the first core part of our country, you know, our, our charter as a country. Same thing here. This forms the primary law for Israel. Now, they have other civil and ceremonial laws, but the primary, primarily moral law is right there in the Big Ten. Now, God it was forming them. Now, when I was, when I, the kids are going to go up to camp, the teens are going to go up to Williams, and there's not like big mountains there. It's kind of some hills. When the camp was in Flagstaff, it was at the base of Mount Eldon. I think there's three, there's uh, Humphreys, and then, was there another one? And then Eldon. There's at least Humphreys and Eldon. They're actually dormant volcanoes. And uh, that, uh, the ski slopes are on Humphreys, which is the highest mountain in Arizona. So we were at the base of Mount Eldon, the camp was then, and that's where I worked, and that's where like Brother Adam and Sonia and some of the older ones in the church went there as teenagers, and, and it was literally at the base of this mountain. It was really cool. In fact, when they rebuilt the camp, they're like, we want to, this is a whole other story, we want to pray, take the old auditorium with us, because like C.I. Schofield and R.A. Torrey, and all these famous preachers had preached there before. And so, well, we weren't able to do it. But anyways, so we, were, we would learn at the base of this mountain. And occasionally, you get, they would hike around the mountain. And rarely, there was a few leaders that could go up the mountain like Moses. And I got to be one of them one time. Me and the guys, we trailblazed without a, we didn't, go, we didn't acknowledge any trail. We just went right up the face of the mountain. That's another story. But after leaving there, I mean, we, we learned a lot. And it was very formative. It was very formative in what I learned at camp at the base of a mountain. And it's formative for what you guys could spend five days learning at camp. And the juniors, it's formative. It's an, you know, you get to unplug, you get to focus, and, and you get to learn some things from preaching in a, you know, a, primarily a, a quiet place. Besides when there's activities going, it's a, it's a peaceful environment. And it's formative. The, 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 uh, the, the founders of our country... They wanted the Ten Commandments to be influencing our country, right? It's, it, they wanted it to be formative on the conscious of the typical American, right? Are there not semblances of the Ten Commandments around our country in certain places? And then, you know, liberals want to take it down. Is not? Did you know this? I haven't been there. I still want to go to Washington, D.C. Moses is carved there in several places. Did you get a seat? Is he on the outside of the Supreme Court at the top there? I believe he is. But you did see him. Okay, so I know there's, I'm reading this stuff, and you go up to the Supreme Court, there's several leaders in history, not all Christian. And Moses, I think, is the middle one at the top of the Supreme Court. And they, I heard that he's, there's even a carving of him in the, in the Supreme Court itself. 
so that when the Supreme Court's considering, should we let there be a public display of the Ten Commandments? Moses is telling his, his opinion right there. The point is, our founders wanted us to be influenced by these Ten Commandments, these, these clear moral um, you know, principles from God. They wanted us to, wanted to saved or unsaved, Christian or non-Christian, let it to be affect the public mind. And what do we have right now in our society? People say, we don't want you to be affected by that. Let's get rid of that. Uh, they want, they're, more, they're more concerned about climate injustice than moral injustices, which is, which is a joke. And God's turning the wisdom of the current liberal and Democrat, they're turning their wisdom into foolishness. But they're trying to get rid of that. They don't want that to be formative. They want perverted laws to be formative on us, right? So we know that's happening, and I'm going to get off of that. Proverbs 28, verse 4 says, um, well, let me read it here. Verse Proverbs 28, 4, and then we're going to get into some particular points. Proverbs 28, verse 4, it says, They that forsake the law praise the wicked. They that forsake the law praise the wicked and celebrate them. But such as keep with the law say, hey, wait a minute. They contend with them. That's what Solomon the king said, and he was a politician. They that forsake the law praise the wicked, but they, such as keep the law contend with them. It's okay with us to contend about law and say, no, we should have this law. We should have this law, a, a righteous one. So anyways, here we go. Here's God's Ten Commandments. What is the kind of the central point? Paul says, it says it a couple times in the New Testament, that God's law is good. It says it's good. Paul says in Romans 3, 20, do we, should we make the, or 321, should we make the law void? Because well, we have faith now, we don't really need to worry about this. No, he says, no, we establish it. It needs to stay put. He says the law in Romans 7, 20, the law is just and the commandment is holy and the law is good. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says the law is good. He says it again in 1 Timothy, law is good if a man use it lawfully. Now let's just think personally, instead of just thinking like in this vague, general sense, for us, for you and God, you and I, with God personally, it's good for us to say, oh, God's parameters, all right, that's good. You know, um, aren't you glad that when you drive up, when you guys go to camp tomorrow and Rusty has a trailer hooked up to the van and Miss Sonia's driving whatever she's driving, as you're going up the mountains, you're going to have some guardrails. If you're the mountains this side and you're going up a mountain pass, there's guardrails over here. Or if you're the mountains on this side and you're going up, there's guardrails over here on some of uh, perilous spots. Aren't you glad for guardrails? Yeah, that's good. And God says, hey, we're going to have some guardrails to keep you safe. So the law is good. Let's, let's just answer. I have review a few things, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I want to... Maybe three of these points will spend a little bit more time, and I'll try to go quickly through the other. How is God's law good for me? How is it good for people? We need to care about that thought because we live in a society that says, if God has a law, I don't want anything to do with it. How is God's law good? Number one, God's law is good because He had one to two million witnesses that, that attest to it. He had one to two million witnesses that took that attested to it. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. God spake, and God spake all these words. It says, and God spake all these words. Now, how do we know? Well, we have manuscript evidence, but, the, but we're, we're, this was a historical event where one to two million people can attest to it. 
when these people came out, I don't have the clicker, but when these people came out of the children of Israel wandering around, they said, yeah, God did that, all right. He said all those things. One to two million people can say, yeah, God told us this. I had Mormons knock on my door yesterday. And don't, by the way, if you have Mormons come to your door, don't be a jerk. Just try to think. If I was them, how would I want to be talked to and talk to them that way? And so I got talking to the guys and I said, guys, and they, oh, yeah, it's good to see you. Oh, you're a pastor. Oh, that's wonderful. We're just spreading the love of Jesus. And so, and I, and I know them and I understand what the, where their brain is. And I said, guys, let's get right to this. I've been studying a little bit of Joseph Smith. And, um, and I told them what we've taught. I says, you know, this guy has some false prophecies. And Moses already told us if he has a false prophecy, he's a false prophet. You don't have to follow him. That ends it right there. I said, but not only that, the things he claims, he claims that God showed him these golden plates and he translated them, right? And then gave us the Book of Mormon. I said, who else was there? There's nobody else there. There's no other witnesses. And then I appealed to this text. I said, even the, even the Old Testament law is not like that. Moses didn't come down from a mountain and said, I got these writings. Just trust me. God gave them to me. He said before he got it on stone, they were all there listening to hear it audibly, and then God gave them a transcript of the audio afterwards. So they all could hear when Moses, when God spoke with Moses, says, but that didn't happen to Joseph Smith. And it's like, you know, smiling. They'll smile and nod. And then when I was done, he said, have you heard of the three, the three witnesses? I said, I haven't. He goes, it's, really, it's some writing about three witnesses who saw the plates. They saw the plates. And I'm thinking, all right, where are they at? And I didn't, I didn't I think, well, I guess I'll have to read that. And I went out, and then later on I'm thinking, they saw the plates, but they still didn't hear God say that this is from him. And so what I'm saying is there's a problem with certain religions where it's like, hey, trust me, just trust this guy. Just trust this guy. This is right. The Bible doesn't even do that. We can say the Bible is attested to by many witnesses, and we can trust God, and we can trust his law. It's good in that it had one to two million witnesses. Number two, it's good because God, it's based on the only true and eternal God. Look what it says, chapter 20, verse 1. God's saying, hey, I'm not just going to tell you these laws. I want you to know who I am. I am the Lord. That's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The, the Hebrew word for that is Jehovah or Jehovah. I am Jehovah. That's my personal name, thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. When God says, I'm Jehovah, you know what he's saying? He's declaring his nature that he is the uncreated uh, eternal one, the uncaused first cause of all things. He is the true eternal God. Follow me quickly to Psalm 83, 18, and then I'm going to show you why this matters. Psalm 83, 18. Look what it says about God. Psalm 83, 18, it says, um, that, all, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. The God we serve is the eternal God. He's not just one of the many gods. He's not the God of Mormonism who came from a council of God, who came from a council of God. He is the uncaused first cause, the most high over earth. Not only that, follow me quickly, Psalm 90, verse 2. I want to keep you on your toes. We seem a little sluggish today. Psalm 90, verse 2. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting, to everlasting, thou art God. 
there's even, I'm, we're studying religions, and I'm like, even some of these religions, they nobody claims to have an eternal God except maybe Islam, but even then there's some awkward things in that. This, our God is eternal in the heavens. Look in Isaiah 44, 6, Isaiah 44, 6. And this is what I brought up to our Mormon uh, guests that came to our door yesterday. I said, guys, here's the other problem is that I know that Joseph, and I try not to say you guys, you guys, you guys. I try to put the pressure on Joseph Smith in his writings. I'm like, I try to put three people there that day, me and my friends and this guy, Joseph Smith, that's been messing them up. I said, he wrote these things about God, that God came from God's. And so I pointed out Isaiah, Isaiah uh, 44, verse 6, which is I encourage you to do what I just said. Try not to make it about them. Try to make it about the person or thing that would have been teaching them. It helps them accept what you're saying a little better. So Isaiah 44, verse 6, it says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. So I said that again to these gentlemen, and it's just like, yeah, man. And they know, and they know their theology teaches that there's other gods. But God, the God of the Bible, the God of this book, the God of this miraculous book says, I'm the only one. There's no other gods. And that's the God who's given us these Ten Commandments. It's the true eternal God. We're going to go quickly through these next four or five points, and I'm going to camp out a little longer on the last two. Number three, why is this good? Why is God's law good? And number three, because it appeals to one's personal relationship with God. We already hammered this home last week. Look at chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord, thy God. Remember the difference between thy and you? For the sake of the English, this older English is, reflect, is reflecting accurate Hebrew. Okay? I'm not trying to make a translation debate today, but just as a matter of fact, thy means singular. It's just a fact. You technically means plural. That's just a fact. And it represents an actual Hebrew word, you, plural, and an actual Hebrew word, thy, singular. So when he says, I am the Lord thy God, he's speaking to every last individual Israeli, and he's not being generic. Hey, people, just follow me. Hey, just love me. He says, hey, I am your God. You got direct, I rescued you out of Egypt, and you out of Egypt, and you out of Egypt, and you out of Egypt. I love every last one of you. I rescued each one of you. And based on that saving relationship, this is what we need to do. I don't have any other God but me. Don't be bound down to images. I'm the real one. Appealing to the individual. That's how Christianity ought to be. It ought not be anybody in here says, what are you? Oh, I'm a Baptist. Oh, I go to this. Don't talk that, just merely talk that way like I'm Baptist, I'm this, and I, and we, and say I am a Baptist, but I was saved, and I know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Make it personal because that's how God wants it to be. Even in this fearful situation of the Ten Commandments, God cares about a personal relationship. All right, it appeals to one's personal relationship with God. These, uh, these show us ways to love God. You know one way to love my wife? Don't be loving anybody else. And that's what God says too. Hey, I'm the only one. Don't have anybody else in between this relationship here. Have no other gods but me. That's the first command. Number, three, number four, he appeals to our personal responsibility. Why is this law good? He appeals to our personal responsibility. Picking up on verse uh, um, 12, personal responsibility toward man. Honor you, honor your father and mother. You individually. Honor thy father and mother. Look at verse 13. Thou, you individually, should not kill. It's your responsibility to not be killing people. 
It's your murder in that sense of unjustified killing. That's what that means. It doesn't talk about, it's, it, God's not banning uh, death penalty or war scenarios. You, individually, thou, shalt not steal. God says, hey, make it your responsibility not to be a thief. We get really like that. You know, we, you know, we're like, look at all these bad people. Look at all these wicked people. Look at all these people stealing and, and lying and stuff like that. Okay, but do you steal? Do you lie? And so that's what God's trying to do. And it's also, it's also this is a whole other thing. Did you know what basically Jesus says about this? Jesus says, this is how, if you love somebody, you're going to do this. If you love God, you're going to do this because that's why it's there to show you how to love God. It's showing you how to love man. You think I love, I, I love Seamus if I start stealing, I take him to camp, I start stealing his money. I don't love Seamus if I'm stealing from him. Hey, Seamus, man, I love you. And I'm stealing from him. I don't love him. The Bible says, for this thou shalt, for this thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not commit anything. Why? Because you love that person. That's why. So these are ways to show love. It's ways to execute my personal responsibility toward man. Number it clearly points out sin. Why is this law good? Don't forget this one. Why is God's law good? And it's not just for a nice fancy thing to have in our house. It's good because it clearly points out sin. Maybe that's why liberals and godless people don't want it in our schools. It's embarrassing to say thou shalt not steal when you're a government work. No, I'm just kidding. But a uh, politician, when you're a politician. Um, or, you know, it's, it can be embarrassing to see that stuff, right? Uh, that's kind of like, get that out of here. That's just this religious stuff, you know. But it points out sin. Um, okay. Uh, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20. How do I know sin? By the law. Okay, so has anybody ever laid brick? Anybody ever done brick? Anybody? All right. Did you also do a plumb line? Did you do a plumb line? Okay. Did you say you did it, Roderick? If you do brick, and I'm not an expert on this, i just seen it done. If you're laying brick and you're stacking and doing your deal, you got to bring out the plumb line. The plumb line is like, it don't lie. Okay, it's, it's set up in some way as to drop a string, and there's a basic weight with a uh, milled, finely milled tip to it. And that string is, uh, what would you say, perfectly square to gravity, to the earth. And you have to have, if your bricks are going like this, if your plumb line's like this and your brick's kind of going like that, that, there's nothing wrong with the plumb line. It's your brick. You've got to change. The plumb line is what it is. And that's what we say of God's law. Everything, there's nothing wrong. It's good. There's nothing wrong with every last command in this. If I if you run into it, it's my fault. I need to square up. If I'm stealing, it's my issue. I need to square up. I don't need to change the book. I change the reader. Right? I don't need to rewrite the book. I need to re reshape my, my actions. And so God's law, it's like this. Have you ever, some of you ladies, you know, you're sitting there in your house and uh, you're there with your, and uh, it's like early morning and the, the sun's coming through the blinds or whatever. And you're sipping your coffee and one of the kids jumps, and jumps on the couch and you're like, look at all the dust in here. You know, or somebody moves something on a countertop and they're like, oh, and it's the lights going, Phew! And it shows these little dust balls. It's dusty. Now, Junior, since you did that, you might as well dust around the living room. And you start putting them like, oh, man. And I think if only the light wasn't coming in that way, Mom wouldn't have saw all the dust. You know? That's it. That's the law. You know, the Bible says the law is light. 
Some of the things that we see in somebody else, I'm like, yeah, it looks pretty good. Shine God's light on this person. Oh, well, I guess we see something else, don't we? The law is light. Paul talked about, I had not really known except by the law. Okay, and however, number five, number six now, we're moving along. Hope you're finding this here. Number six, the, the law is good because, listen to this, even though we don't really know much by the law, there's a backup copy. Number six, the law is good because it's backed up by man's natural conscience. Did you know there's a certain amount of God's, I don't, I don't know how much, but there's a certain amount of the things you read in the Ten Commandments, it's already written in you before it was written at Sinai. Watch this. Go to Romans 2. God already had an internal copy written in your natural conscience. Romans 2, Paul's writing, he's talking about how, you know, the Jews clearly know this because they have a published thing of the Ten Commandments. But then Paul says, isn't it interesting how Gentiles who don't even have that are seem to sometimes gravitate around these the moral awareness of these commands. So he says in Romans 2, verse 14, Gentiles, it's, he's, he means that in the sense of the, the ones that don't have the Scripture, okay, as he says, which have not the law. What do they do? They do by nature can, things contained in the law. It doesn't mean they're perfectly righteous, Okay. What do Gentiles do? They don't have the law, but why is it by nature they do things contained in the law? These people, having not the law, are a law unto themselves. And I'll pause right there. Do you ever notice, if you, pretty much if you go anywhere in the world, you're going to find it's not right to murder. You're going to have a, some tribe in the deep jungle, and they're going to have a bone in their nose and say ooga booga to you. But you know what? One thing you'll have in common, you shouldn't just be killing people for nothing. Or you shouldn't steal. Now, they might respond to those crimes differently than they do, but there's basic things that their, their conscience says, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. Okay, these things are law to themselves. Look at, why is that? Verse 15. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. Now, he goes on to explain how that, it's in you. There's a certain moral. There's certain moral awareness that each man, that all of us have in us, and Paul's saying that's that's going to show you that you're going to be without excuse before God, because you're going to realize you're a sinner because you're aware of that law to that certain extent. So why is God's law good? Because it's backed up by man's natural conscience. Number seven. Two more points. We'll be done. The law is good because this is beautiful. It shows the perfections of Jesus. It shows the perfections of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Go there quickly. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Again, I'm trying to keep you all um, alert here. Jesus, this is awesome. <laughs> These three chapters, Jesus is showing us the spirit of the law and about your motive and stuff. And he didn't want to be misunderstood. He said, Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. I'm not trying to dismiss everything Moses said and all these parameters of the, uh, that are in the ceremonial Levitical laws, and I'm not trying to dismiss the prophets. I'm coming, I'm fulfilling everything that they've prescribed perfectly. For verily I say unto you, verse 18, Till heaven and earth pass, 
one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. We use that as a justification for God preserving the Scripture, and it is a good verse to say God's going to preserve His Word forever. But the main thrust that Jesus is saying is this law is not going anywhere till, it's show, till you, everybody sees I perfectly nailed it, checked every box, till everything's fulfilled. How many of us have ever seen um, Jokic, what's the Jokic won the, the Nuggets won the championship? You see that dude? That dude's big. How tall is he? Anybody know how tall he is? Seven one. You know, I've read, I, I didn't know how tall he was, but he's got like a size um, 16, I read, size 16 shoe. Pretty big. Now, I think it's Calder. What size shoe are you wearing, Calder? You have a big foot. Huh? Ten and a half. He's like, like my height. He's got ten and a half. Or maybe I'm just not normal. I don't know. But, and so Jokic has got size 16. You know what Shaquille O'Neal's shoe size is? 22. <laughs> I'm wearing a size 9. This guy's got size 20. I remember one time I was watching like something on NBA. This was probably 20 years ago. And they're like, this is... It was like one of these common, I don't know, one of these announcers, you know, with those really announcer-type voices, you know, one of those guys. And he's like, I'm here with Shaquille O'Neal. And, and they showed his shoe. He, went, um, he wasn't with Shaquille O'Neal. He just showed a shoe. And it was just gigantic. And he goes, I can put my shoe in it easily. And he did. I'm like, wow, yeah. And so, I mean, he's got this big shoe. Who can, anybody else can put their foot in that in here? No. Nobody can fill that shoe. And that's the, that's the idea is like the law is good because we see that it's good. I haven't filled that perfectly without fail. I haven't, I've, I've struck out a lot. But we see Jesus doesn't strike out. And if it's a shoe, Jesus fits it perfectly. He's the only one that can fill that, that requirement perfectly, we say. And then last point, number eight, why is the law good? So many different reasons, but it, the law is good. And this is probably the most, one of the most precious things is that the law points us to Jesus. Not only does it show us perfections so that we can see Him, but it points us to run to Him. So follow me to a couple more scriptures, and then we'll start to wind this down. Um, Galatians 3, you've heard me quote this before, but let's look at it. The law of God points us to run to Jesus for Him to save us. All right, Galatians chapter 3. And it says about um, the relationship between uh, the law and the Christian. Um, verse 23, before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should ha hereafter afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. There's a couple different pictures of schoolmaster, and I'm trying to figure out which one's the true one. Schoolmaster, some say the schoolmaster just means a regular teacher, and a teacher leads you to something else. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says that this Greek word schoolmaster meant a household slave that spent a lot of time with the kid and brought this kid to school because the slave can only teach so much. Either one of those, you see this transition thing that the law can only help to a certain degree. The law, like when you read the law, we're like, oh, yeah, don't do this, don't do that, have God as your only God. Well, that's good, but man, I, how am I going to get forgiven? How am I going to be forever saved? How am I going to know Jesus? How am I going to have a, uh, that uh, be redeemed? I'm not going to be redeemed by keeping trying to keep the law. I'm going to be redeemed by the law saying, you've messed up, haven't you? All right, now here's Jesus. 
He's fulfilled it all for you. He's paid for all of your sins that you've committed, past, present, future, and he's got you forgiven. The law is my schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus. That's why it's okay when we, when we talk to somebody trying to show them the gospel, spend some time on the law. Let the schoolmaster do some work. Don't be the only one witnessing that day. Well, that's uncomfortable. Exactly. It's exactly uncomfortable. Why would somebody want a doctor if they're already comfortable? Why would somebody want a lawyer if they haven't broken any, crime, any laws? But when, you're, when you realize, oh, I'm sick, where's the doctor? Oh, I'm in trouble. I broke a lot of, I've, I've broken some laws. Where's my lawyer? That's how it is in giving the gospel. You have to show the reality of the honest news of sin and broken, breaking God's law. So the law is our schoolmaster. I remember when I was a little kid. So you've got some TCA students in here. Let me just tell you something. I got spanked at TCA twice. And for the record, it was good. I needed it. All right? This was a long, long time ago when they were allowed to paddle and stuff. I remember I got, I like, kindergarten, first grade, I went there. And so I remember I had dear old Mrs. Bostow, kindergarten teacher. And then the next year I had Mrs. Farmer. I didn't get spanked in her class, but uh, I had something else happen. So I remember getting in trouble a couple times. And uh, I don't remember what it was, but it was a sin. So, uh, and she took me and she paddled me. Now, Mike, I mean, it was like having a nice, sweet grandmother paddle you, but then she got serious for that moment. She paddled me and I got, for whatever I did, and I happened twice, and I deserved it. So, uh, I'm not trying to change policies or anything, just, just as a matter of fact, that's how it happened. And then in first grade, I can name the guy that I was with. We got into some trouble. I don't want to name him. But uh, we did some things and got into trouble once or twice, and I had to go to what was called Mr. T's office. He became Dr. T later, who ran the college, and then he died a couple years ago. But Mr. T's office, who was the principal. And I got in trouble for doing something. I'll tell you later. Um, <laughs> uh, I got in trouble for doing something. It happened. There's two instances. And I remember going in Mr. T's office and sitting there. All, I had, my mom would say I had a kind of a tender heart or conscience. Sitting there, Mr. T, because I, you know, I hear Michael, you and so and so did this, and now you broke the school, you know, that was inappropriate conduct, and and all this, and Mr. T's talking to me now, Michael, we're gonna, and he's telling me different things, and and I didn't get spanked by him, but you know what, man, he put this pin on my shirt, he put a piece of paper and a like a safety pin. And I went home with this. This is the end of the day. I went home with something on my shirt. I didn't know what it said. It probably said, this kid's busted. You know, it, it said something. And, uh, and I went, Mom and Dad picked me up, and, and they talked to me. And I, I don't remember. I may have gotten a spanking too. But it was like, this kid needs help. Help him. You know, he busted the law. And that happened, I think, twice in first grade. And so, and that's kind of what it is. It's like we, we in life, you interact with things in life, and you see God's law. You're like, hey, that's good. And then we're like, man, I messed that up. I keep sinning all the time. I keep messing things up. I know in my mind that's good, but my body's like, oh, my, my, the, the, there's another law warring against me inside that wants to do this, but I know there's a law in my mind that says do this. This is what Paul describes in Romans 7. And, um, and then finally, like, man, I, who's going to deliver me from this? Huh? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Both in salvation, he delivers me from the guilt of that. And then as a Christian, Jesus helps us. Jesus helps us live for him. By his spirit, he helps us honor the law. Not that we'll be sinless. We won't. I don't think we will. I don't preach that. But he helps us live in an honorable way, observing still his law. And, um, and so, you know, we go to Jesus. We go to Jesus. He redeems us from the, this law, 
from the curse of the law. When you trust Him, you're redeemed from that curse of it. And then He enables us to live for Him. And there's more scriptures we could look at. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 to 6 would be great for somebody to look at later on. So thank the Lord He's given us these things. But again, I want you to just see this, just one thing. It's like this isn't just about rules. And there's so many ways we can close with this. I want you to see, it wasn't just about rules. It, is, it was about relationship. God says, let's, have, let's do these things because this represents my character. This is what's best for you. Just like it's best for you to have guardrails going up a street. It's best for you to have some stoplights when you come to an intersection. It's good for you. And this is good for your relationship with me. And so let's ask the Lord to bless us as we've considered his word today. And uh, let's pray.